Hello, hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Dreamers Succeed podcast. And you all know that I don't have a list. Today, you're going to know why I call them episodes. We have a great guest joining us today. Uh, Dr. John Schinner is the host of the Evolved Caveman podcast. He's coaching men beyond uh, that man box culture that that we tend to fall into uh, towards greater connection, success, and happiness in relationships, in leadership, and communication, in their physical health, and in business. In other words, it's a very holistic approach to success and happiness and what that means for each person. Uh, by the way, his podcast is in the top 10 in self-help and quickly rising, which is a huge deal for anyone out there in the podcast world, you know what that means. So I could stay in introduction mode throughout the entire episode based on his very long list of accolades, but I will save some room for our conversation. So welcome, Dr. John. Hi, Berta. Thanks for having me. So, so happy that you're here and thank you for making the time. Absolutely. How are, how are things in your neck of the woods? Uh, they're good. we got a little smoke, a little fire here in Northern California. But uh, overall, I'm, I'm grateful. I feel blessed to be alive as, as often as I can. I love it. Love it. Good, good. So we're going to get right into it because, again, I want to honor your time. And, and again, I am so grateful that you made the time to join us. But I do, I do know that we have a lot to cover just because you're so amazing. And I, and I want to get into that right away with your permission. So I, let's talk for a minute about the Evolved Caveman podcast because I, I'd love to know how you, you found that very important space to breathe life into. How did that come to be? Uh, well, thanks for the question. It's kind of an interesting story. I knew that I needed to broaden my platform. I, in, in my opinion, ever since I was at UC Berkeley doing my PhD program, I realized that there's a lot of great tools and information hidden in academia in the research. But it's written in such a way that very few people actually understand it or can make use of it. So I've always tried to bring down technical concepts and tools to a level where everyone can understand them. And, you know, I did an anger management class years ago. Um, I did a book years ago. And then I went through a difficult divorce and that kind of killed my productivity for a few years. So getting back into the swing of things, I thought, I really need to get a bigger platform. Um, and I went with my fiance to a Dan Millman retreat in Costa Rica. And Dan Millman wrote The Way of the Peaceful Warrior mm -hmm. and about 16 other books. Uh, he's pretty amazing. But it was interesting. We went to, they have these amazing body workers there, like mm. masseuses, but they're beyond masseuses. They're, you know, like you're getting a massage and they'll say, so, you know, have you talked to your father lately? Yes. And, you know, like, <laughs> like, it's kind of like therapy and massage together. And I was like, what? Like, what is going on here? I had never experienced it before. Mm -hmm. And we go to this one um, sort of a meditation class with sound. Mm -hmm. And this lady has like huge singing bowls and like, uh, a drum stretched with elk skin and like shamanic chimes. And I've never done anything like this before. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just go with it. This should be cool. And she walks us through this visualization slash meditation. And, you know, there's a spirit animal involved and you get on the spirit animal and he takes you through the forest. And then she just lets you go to wherever you want to go. 
Well, in my mind's eye, my spirit animal, an elk, took me to a cave in the forest. And in the back of this cave, there's a treasure chest. And in that treasure chest, when I opened it up, was all this technical equipment, laptop, headphones, microphone. And I thought, oh, shit, I got to do, do a podcast. And, and so one of the, I thought about calling it the reluctant podcaster because <laughs> I, I was just like, oh, man, like, gosh. <laughs> I, because I, I can be kind of introverted and shy mm -hmm. and, um, I'm also often talking about masculinity, which is mm -hmm. a very divisive issue. People get, they either love it or they hate it. Mm -hmm. And the people that hate it can get pretty upset about it. And, you know, I'm just trying to talk about it in a way that would help men to evolve past that traditional way of being so that we're better than, and more specifically better than in relationships, because I, I think we're, we lose a lot in that area. Mm -hmm. um, so I came up with the name, The Evolved Caveman, just mm -hmm. to indicate that we are trying to evolve past caveman status. We all have some caveman in us or cavewoman, mm -hmm. and we all have that which has evolved beyond it, that you know, prefrontal cortex or the thinking brain. Um, and so where and when do you want to be a caveman and where and when do you want to be more than that? That's super interesting. And, and I love so much, so much of what you just said, particularly the, the, the invitation of shit. I really don't want to do this, but crap, this is what I really have to do. Right. And, and taking that, that lead now, given your, the way that you look at the mind and, and the way that it works because of your, your background and your PhD, have you seen, even since you started the podcast, do you see a, a difference in that evolution as, 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 you know, we've, we're navigating different times in the last few years? Evolution personally or on a larger scale? Either, whichever one you prefer. Um, my first thought was personally, and I think mm -hmm. absolutely, um, because I've, I've interviewed a lot of men and, and women, but men about men's issues and sort of the psychology of men and the psychology of gender. And so it's helped me to uncover some blind spots. Um, when Black Lives Matter came into being, I interviewed an African-American author about Black Lives Matter, and that was a little anxiety provoking because I was 99% sure I was gonna stick my foot in my mouth, mm -hmm. um, but I felt it was an important conversation to have regardless. Um, and so I, I think it's made me a little bit more precise with my use of language, which I think is something I could definitely use help with. Okay. Good, good. And do you find that that might be where the, and, and I, and I have this thing and I, I always say with my husband, we've been married 33 years. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. In a month, it'll be 33 years. But I always say, you know, when he says, I didn't mean to say that I said, and, and at one point I said, listen, there's a difference between what you didn't mean to say and what you wish you hadn't said. And I think that might be what you were talking about, that frontal lobe, that caveman. It's just, you know, shoot from the hip and whatever the hell comes out is going to come out. Yeah. Do you find that when you just said that you are, that you're the preciseness of your words and the way that you're speaking, is that something that you have to really make an intentional effort to build on every day? Do you find that people do that? <laughs> Absolutely. I, and I think there's two, at least two sides to it that I think of. One is when I'm calm, cool, and collected, and my rational mind is in charge of me, much easier to be precise in my language. Mm. However, when I start to get emotional, when that emotional mind begins to take over, whether anger, sadness, fear, guilt, shame, whatever it is, 
that's when it gets really, really tricky to be precise. I mean, just for instance, take anger, for example. Anger is going to make you want to use more words like should, always, never, must. And, and a lot of these words are just almost always in error. I mean, for instance, um, you know, you never take out the garbage. (laughs) You're always sitting on your ass on the couch. You know, is that true? Well, no, it's not. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think we, we tend to do that. And you're right. When, when the emotions are elevated and not always positively, uh, it's, it's just going to go, it's just going to go south. So talk to me a little bit about that anger management you said, and it sounds like you did extensive work in that area in the past. Is that something that you still incorporate (laughs) into your, (laughs) into your world now? Yeah. Well, I I mean, I'm an emotion geek at heart. So I just love learning about emotion and sharing that partly because I've needed it in the past. And, you know, I think towards the end of my marriage, so say, I don't know, 2007, 2008, my wife at the time accused me of being angry. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, after I got done being angry, I said, okay, let me take a look at that. Um, and it, you know, you, we tend to have defensiveness first when something like that comes up, but I want to be fair. Okay. If you think I'm angry, let me look at that and I'll do my, I'll work on my part of the problem. And so I started researching all these tools and then practicing these tools. And then later I came up with, um, well, I realized my business model is problematic and that I have to work an hour to get paid an hour. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for ways to leverage my knowledge and came across this idea of making online classes. So I pulled together an online anger management course for men initially, because they said, find a niche. Mm -hmm. So I did. And when I went live with it, I started getting emails from angry women all around the world saying, Hey buddy, we're pissed off too. What about us? And I was like, okay, they didn't tell me. Like, I didn't know. Come on. Have you never heard of PMS? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) But I did have an assumption at that time that there was more angry men than women. Mm. Um, I also knew that men are far less likely to seek out help, but had the thought that if they could do it in the privacy of their own home, that maybe that might be something to, to check out. Um, so I changed it. I made it gender neutral. Um, and since that time, over 10,000 people have taken that class, which wow. to me is something I'm greatly proud of because I feel like that's making a small dent in creating a better world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because I, anger really does, in all its variations, uh, irritation, annoyance, frustration, resentment, rage, all that makes the world a less safe place for us emotionally and otherwise. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, so, it breeds more of, of itself. Would you say that that's the case? Right. Well, yeah, anger is always looking to keep itself alive. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of grabs your eyeballs and wants to look around the environment and look for more things that keep you pissed off. Hmm. Absolutely. And, I, and, and if I, someone else is in there in the radius, then they get pulled in too. Yeah. Yeah. And the ripple is, is just as strong when it's a positive ripple or maybe more so. And I'd love your input on that. Uh, than when it's a strong, powerful, negative emotion, uh, it just, it just sort of grows exponentially on itself. Well, yeah, the, the negative emotions are stronger and louder than the positive emotions. Um, by a factor of, we think three, four or five to one. Crap. And, you know, it, it depends on what level you're looking at personally, 
uh, in a couple or in a, an executive team. But the one of the things I love about positive emotions is how much better you can get at spotting them. And just having the awareness that positive emotions are fleeting and fragile and that they whisper to you. And so mm -hmm. if you're not looking for them, it's easy to miss them. And I think a lot of us make that assumption that, oh, it's a positive emotion, we'll pick it up, no problem. Well, not really. I mean, what about elevation, for example? You know, elevation is kind of a new uh, positive emotion that you experience when you watch someone do an act of moral courage. Yes. Um, you know, what about awe? What about gratitude or serenity or peacefulness or relaxation? Oh. I know a lot of people that confuse tiredness with relaxation. Mm -hmm. Because relaxation is so foreign to them. Right. That's amazing. I love that. And, and I love that you were talking about being, and I can see now where it's coming from. And I want to talk a little bit more about the team component, uh, because I think it's an important thing, especially given the, the, what we're navigating through right now. Where, where the team structure has just been uh, shaken at its core with organizations. But before I move on to that, and you said it, that you, you're just an emotion, you love, you know, researching and, and looking into emotions. Now, guys, fucking cool as hell, right? You have no idea if, if you don't know him already, but Dr. John served as one of three expert consultants for Pixar's movie Inside Out. And that's one of my favorite movies of all time. And, and it was such an important message. So what was that like generally? And then I have, I have a few really, really um, specifics that I want to talk to you about just because of the impact that that movie had on me. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I was just honored to have a tiny part in it. I, I mean, I, I've been asked in the past, you know, was this like a, a lifelong goal of yours? And I, my response is, <laughs> I don't know how I could have ever come up with such a goal. Um, right. It, it was way bigger than I could have ever thought. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, because of that anger management class that I did, and because I used to be a pretty good programmer, I could do SEO quite well. I dominated the first two pages of Google's organic rankings with certain phrases like anger management course. Mm -hmm. And because of that, uh, Pixar found me and they're in Emeryville and I'm 30 minutes away. And I think they were looking for an anger management expert and I fit the bill. So I get this call one day and she says, you know, I'm an executive assistant here at Pixar. Can you talk to a producer here? And I was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> like, yeah, sure. And I'm thinking maybe he's stressed or depressed or anxious. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And he gets on the phone. He says, Hey, this is Jonas Rivera. I produced this movie called up. Maybe you've heard of it. I'm like, oh. yeah, I, <laughs> I said, I think I own it. I knew I owned it. Yeah. I was just trying yeah. to play cool, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I've, I've got four kids. I, I'm, I think I own it. And he said, oh, oh, great. Well, you know, me and Pete Doctor, Pete directed up and uh, we're working on a new project and we we're wondering if you'd come down and kind of kick some ideas around and brainstorm with us. And I was mm -hmm. on the other end of the phone, like wetting my pants, like hyperventilating, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I can do that. Mm -hmm. I think I can fit that in my calendar. I'm <laughs> awfully busy, but yeah, <laughs> trying to be cool. I'll try to see so I got to go down. <laughs> yeah. I, so I got to go down and consult with the top 12 of them on that team when they were doing foundational research. And it was amazing. Like those people knew so much about emotion before I even stepped foot in the room. I was blown away. Wow. 
That's great. Um, and they were like talking about like Plutchkin's circumplex of emotion. I'm like, you guys know what that is? Like most psychologists don't know what that is. Right, right. Um, and so that was amazing, you know, to get to see concept art of the figures. Um, at that time, disgust looked like a big, the, the whole character was a nose and the nose was kind of upturned. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's going to work real well. Um, but yeah, we spent a, you know, a full business day just going over anger, anger dynamics, um, neuropsychology, um, and it was, it was a blast. It was very, very intelligent people. Yeah. That, that is so, so cool. You know, I took my, my granddaughter and my little cousins. I always will find, cause I, I love the messages in supposedly meant for children movies, right? There's always such a big message. But when I came back that weekend, I thought, you know, I, I've got to journal a little bit. I've got to, you know, just get out of me what is what is being stirred up. And 10 pages later into my keyboard, so this is 10 font, <laughs> single space, uh, 10 pages later, yeah. I'm telling you, it really stirred shit up. I mean, it, it really did. Yeah. So one of the things that was really, really interesting to me, and I wanted, I, I want to pick your brain on this, was the importance of the contrast between joy and sadness and, and how they are reflective of each other and how one can almost not exist without the other. That's the impression that I got from the movie. But mm-hmm. given your, your expertise, what, what would you say about something like that? Well, one of the things I loved was how they, towards the end of the movie, one of Riley's memories was both happy and sad. So it was bittersweet. Right. And I just thought there was great beauty and wisdom to that. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the things we know, I mean, a few basics about emotions. Emotions are contagious, so we can pick them up from other people. We can feel more than one thing simultaneously about any given thing or person. And you know, I think oftentimes we're just struggling to put one emotion label on how we're mm-hmm. feeling. Um, and emotions are not good or bad, they just are. And I think the better we can get a handle on that idea, the better off we're all gonna be. You know, I think we often judge ourselves for feeling a certain way, like I'm depressed, I shouldn't feel depressed. There's not enough reason to feel depressed. And then you're angry that you're depressed and then you feel guilty that you're depressed and it just creates a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other thing that strikes me, well, and to, in response to your question, I do think that happiness and sadness cannot exist without each other. And, you know, I, like I try and help people become happier, but mm-hmm. I, I always quickly follow that with, that doesn't mean you're going to be happy all the time. It means you can be in a positive emotional state more of the time. And, you know, one of the lines in the sand is for a happy, thriving life, you want to experience positive emotions three times as often as negative emotions. But all emotions exist for a purpose. And so if we don't have the downs, if we don't have the struggles, we've got nothing to compare the highs to. Right. Um, the other thing that, the other one point that I wanted to bring up, because I, I was really impressed with how they incorporated neuroscience into that movie. And the example I can give is, you know, you remember the, the control panels in the, yes. in the minds, right? Yes. And how there's five emotions at the control panel. And if you pay attention for each person, there's a different emotion at the helm or the center of each control panel. So for Riley, the 13 year old girl, it started out with happiness and then, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of all hell breaks loose as puberty. And, you know, it's all, all different emotions. I think sadness and happiness are together at the end and charge for the mom. It was sadness. 
-hmm. For the dad, it was anger. And that's based on neuroscience in the sense that we all have a primary or signature emotion. And, you know, that's our kind of go-to emotion. I think for most men, it's probably anger. But I I also think, and I don't have anything to back this up. This is just a a hunch. I think that through the course of our lifespan, that we need to rotate through each of those negative emotions as our primary emotion in order to get to greater happiness. And Mm. I just look back in my life and I know that you know, sadness was my primary emotion for a bit. And then it was anxiety slash fear. And then it was anger. And now I, I don't feel like any of those are my signature emotion anymore. I feel like it's more contentment. Wow. And, and do you, so you're saying that it's contentment now because you went through all the cycles, which, which seems like it would make sense. It's like all the stages of anything, of grief, of, of anything. Yeah, partly because of that. I mean, I, I think that it's a, it's a process of getting comfortable with each of them, with making peace with each of them, with accepting each of them, um, with finding ways to work with each of them, um, with knowing yourself well enough to know how should I respond when I am depressed? What should I do? Or when I am anxious and having a panic attack, what should I do? Mm. Um, I mean, like, especially for men, if you have a panic attack, men feel a lot of shame about that because they're like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be feeling fear. I shouldn't be feeling, what am I afraid of? Um, same with depression. So I, I think part of it's this process of coming to terms with it, coming to acceptance and learning how to work with it. Because I still get sad. I still get anxious. I mm-hmm. still get irritable. It's, but it's just, just not the it, primary. I don't spend as much time stuck there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now, and, and you said earlier, Dr. John, how, how the, the not so positive emotions are, are much louder and, and, and it's easier for them to get our attention. Now, how do we, do you, do you believe based on what you just said, that there's a possibility that you learn to, to pay more attention to the positive ones so that they're not as subtle or easily missed? Absolutely. I think so. We have a every human has a negativity bias in our mind, which means that we naturally, without training, over focus on negative shit, mm-hmm. negative emotions, negative thoughts, negative self definitions like I'm a dumbass, um, negative things we think people might be thinking about us. Mm-hmm. And so those are louder in our mind. And, and so, one of the things, one of the key skills to adapt or to practice if you want a happier life is ways to counterbalance that negativity bias, ways to quiet it down, ways to offset it. And so, you know, one of the biggest ways you can do that is with a daily practice of gratitude and actually not even daily. If you want to get specific, it's actually like a random five days a week out of seven, because Mm -hmm. what you don't want to do with gratitude is you don't want to habituate to it. You don't want to make it so that it's just rote Mm -hmm. and routine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I'm, teaching clients about gratitude, I'll talk about three layers or levels of gratitude. So Mm -hmm. there's gratitude about the really obvious stuff. So I'm grateful for my children. I'm grateful for my house. I'm grateful for my health. Then there's gratitude for less obvious stuff. I'm grateful for the ability to think my own thoughts. I'm grateful for the ability to uh, feed myself with a fork. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for the ability to live on a planet with rainbows and clouds and rain. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the third level which takes a little bit of practice, I think, is gratitude for your biggest challenges in life. So I could say, you know, I'm grateful for the divorce that I had eight years ago, which was really contentious because it gave me 
a chance to practice those emotional management skills and get them down under really triggering situations, things like that. So, but by practicing it, you yeah. train your mind to focus and look for what's good as you go throughout exactly. the day, as opposed to what's not. And I love that you said that because I'm I'm a firm believer in the importance of us focusing on the good. You know, we can find shit everywhere, mm -hmm. right? But but there's a lot of good going on. We just have to be more intentional because it's not blaring, it's not on the news, it's not, you know, on everybody's feed on social media. And and I and I've had this conversation with a few people, but I would love your take on it. Do you? And you said that as as humans, we are predisposed to to gravitate sounds like to the negative by default or something. Mm -hmm. So I am, am one of these optimistic, eternally optimistic people who like, sometimes I have a hard time getting out of optimism mode. I mean, I, I was, I, I, we had a hard year last year and, and we lost my mom and my mother-in-law and it was just, it was just oh, heavy. Sorry. Thank you. And, and when my mom was, was everybody else was seeing that my mom was really deteriorating very quickly And I just thought, you know, what are you kidding? She's only 84. If I can get her to eat, it's all going to be good, you know? And, and, and I, I remember the month before she passed, taking her into the hospital again for that fifth time in, in four months. And I said, you know what? I can't, I, I'm trying to really be down about this. And I can't. What is that? <laughs> Such shit. <laughs> <laughs> What is that? Um, well, it means you're, you're very far on the optimistic side of the scale, which in general is a good thing. I, I think that, you know, in the past, I used to be more pessimistic. And then I learned how to be more realistically optimistic. Mm -hmm. And then I got really optimistic. And then I realized I needed to dial it back a little bit, especially with my clients, because mm -hmm. I, f I realized that what I was doing is they would tell me something really shitty that happened in their lives mm -hmm. or really heavy or tragic. Mm -hmm. And I would go to, I was going too quickly to spinning it in a positive light. Okay. And so I had to pull myself back and go, no, you know, like slow down, like relax, listen, validate, label what they're feeling, empathize, sit with them for a while, and then you can do the positive mm -hmm. spin. But it, it, that could be, you know, a couple of weeks before you do a positive spin and they're ready to hear it. Oh, I love that. I love that you said that because that's one of the things, uh, you know, in coaching that I'm like, what, you don't see how amazing it's going to be? What, what is, what is happening yep. here? You know, I see, and I go into, you know, I say, I go into Brenda Lee Johnson mode, you know, like, that's it. We're going to solve it and we're going to fix it. And, and so I love that you, that you said that and, and playing into that importance of the pause and the, and the, um, and the, the taking the time to be present and to settling yeah. ourselves enough to be present. And I remember we were on a, on a mission trip a couple of years ago to Cambodia. And one of the stops that we made was to um, the museum, you know, and, and, and we're talking about this, just, they didn't call it a Holocaust, but it was, it was, it was that mm. bad. Uh, and, you know, uh, Pol Pot had wiped out 33% of the population. So we're going into this museum and, and you're going into these classrooms and all there is, is just these, these giant, you know, banners with strings and, and photos of all these, these victims who eventually were killed. So they, they were all brought into these camps, um, probably knowing where that was going. But you know, Dr. John, every, every 50 pictures or so, there would be somebody smiling. Hmm. And that hit me like a ton of bricks because I said, 
how do you smile through this? What's going on in that mind? You know, that are they optimistic enough to think, I'm just smiling for a picture and this is all going to be over and something's going to happen. So, and, and that's why I asked about that optimism piece. Is it that it's, it's just such a part of their nature that maybe that's what was coming through? Well, it's interesting. That makes me think of, there was a famous nun study of, uh, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, where they looked at photographs of nuns who were just entering the convent. Mm-hmm. And then they looked at them towards the end of their life. And what they found is that there's, there's two kinds of smiles. There's the fake smile and the authentic smile. Mm-hmm. The fake smile, you don't use any muscles around your eyes. Right. You don't use the obicularis oculi, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. But there's no crow's feet when you right. smile. A mm-hmm. real smile, you'll see crow's feet, the wrinkling around the edge of the eyes. And they looked at these pictures and they graded them. And some of the nuns-to-be were just stone-faced, you know, just kind of straight-faced. Mm-hmm. Some were the fake smile. And some were doing an authentic smile. And what they found 60 years later is that those with the authentic smiles lived longer and had more health benefits. Wow. That's amazing. And that's just from one smile and one photo that they could tell that. It's pretty wild. That's amazing. I, I say the good thing about getting old is that I always have crow's feet now. So people think I'm always <laughs> crow's. It's always an authentic smile. But you know what's funny? That my, my grandfather, and he passed at 97 years old, and... Um, he, he was the most optimistic human being I've ever known and, and work ethic like there was no tomorrow, um, patriotic for this country like there was no tomorrow. And I used to say that my grandfather smiled with his whole face. And that's mm. probably where that's, where that's coming from. So I, I really appreciate you letting me go there and, and picking your brain on that. But one of, the, one of the things that I really remember, and I wanted to, to ask you about this, uh, about the movie Inside Out, was the brilliance of having those islands, right? Of personalities, <laughs> yep. right? Wasn't that crazy? And then I, yes. I remember that when she, lo- I think it was the Honesty Island, when that sort of disintegrated, she sort of, derailed right it was it's so blaring how representative that train was on how we start to lose ourselves and it might be a different island for us but can you talk a little bit into that space and how important you know how what triggers that derailment sometimes well I, you know i think it's interesting the more we find out about the brain the more we find out there's distinct areas that tend to work together as clusters or networks and I don't think we know yet if there's specific areas that map onto something like that, those islands. Mm-hmm. I like to think that there are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that definitely in terms of our identity formation, we've got some things that are so near and dear to us, these core memories. And if those get damaged or altered or forgotten, it can be a problem. I, I, one of the things I like to tell my clients about is that you know, we humans are kind of resistant to growth and change because we like staying in our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And so it often takes something traumatic and usually painful to really snap us awake and get us out of that daze and get us to look at, okay, what changes do we need to make? And I, I think that's one of the reasons for sadness actually is that when we've suffered a loss, sadness slows us down and gets us to pause and reflect what have I been doing well? What do I want to leave behind? What changes do I want to make? And I, there was a French philosopher, I think it was Derrida or Foucault, I don't know. But he used to talk about what we need for real change in our lives is a radical shattering of one's framework. 
And I love the idea of, you know, we wear glasses throughout our lives, right? And they can be different colors depending on, you know, optimism, pessimism, mm -hmm. for example, or the mood you're in. But when something traumatic happens, those glasses get thrown to the floor and stepped on and shattered. And so there's a tragedy to that and the pain and the difficulty there. And there's an opportunity. And the opportunity is you get to go bend over, pick up the pieces and put them back together in a new way, a way where you have some intention around how to create your lens. And then you can put on a new set of glasses, which necessarily means that you see the world through a different lens. Wow. And I love that, that analogy. So let me ask you, Dr. John, as far as your, your coaching and the way that you work with men around creating that, that level of success and happiness, and we've had this conversation offline before, uh, that, that encompasses all of those ever so important areas of our lives, how you bring all of that together. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how you do that, how much of that is, has to do with, you know, having those, those glasses that we've been walking around in shattered and then building it back up. Is that part of, of what you, you might do with that mindset piece? Yeah, why well, I think normally, well, boy, there's a lot of ways I can go with that. Um, <laughs> normally, what I'll do is I give, I have a talk that I give on the power of mindset. And, you know, it kind of starts off on growth versus fixed mindset, but then it goes into four or five other areas of research around uh, things like pain management, uh, um, weight loss, eating and food, uh, even aging. And it's all, all areas are about mindset and the tremendous differences that having the proper mindset can create. Um, and I like giving that to people first, simply because I need them to make the decision to have a growth mindset around the work that we're going to be doing. Because the, you know, the placebo effect is true, but the nocebo effect is also true. So the nocebo <laughs> effect is if I don't think it's going to help me, it ain't going to help me. And I've seen earlier in my career, I saw clients doing this, you know, if someone's really depressed and you offer them a tool and they're like, nope, no, nope, no, nope, no, nah, that won't work for me. And then you offer another tool and they're like, no, nope, no, I I've tried that too. And then you offer another tool and they're like, no, no, that's not going to work for someone like me and not my age, not my ethnicity, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And they keep coming up with excuses that it won't work. Well, if that's your approach, none of it's going to work. Right. So the, 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 the belief that something can help you becomes very powerful. Um, so I don't know how far you want to, because <laughs> then there's all <laughs> sorts of other places I can go from there. Yeah, but it, and it makes sense that you you really uh, set, and it's like like everything else, like a placebo. You can take a sugar pill, and if you have a headache, if you believe that it's an yes. aspirin, it's gonna it's gonna take away the headache. So, but but that is important because I think some people have just the reluctance to. To change, I, I, I think we all do. We all have that resistance, as you mentioned before. But then, when there's that much reluctance, there's just no penetration at whatever yeah. level until well, they're. And ready. I think you know, men in particular have you know, you know, you talk about the manbox culture. The manbox culture is basically how we're socialized as boys and the rules that we learn growing up about what it means to be a man. And there are things like, don't feel be invulnerable, be tough, dominate women, be competitive, you know, do well in sports, all that kind of stuff. And emotionally, what happens is if you show too much sadness or fear as a young boy or high school or middle school, 
someone, and usually it's a peer or a friend, will say something like, dude, stop being such a pussy. Don't be a little bitch mm-hmm. or don't be a girl. Yeah. And if you think about those, the fascinating part on the other side is those are all the epitome of femininity. Yeah. Which, you know, little girls hear that too, and they get the message of, oh, I'm less than. And yes. for anyone out with a daughter out there, that should really piss you off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So you get that, that feedback, that criticism, the insult, and you jump back in the man box. And then on the other side, if you get, if you show too much joy, love, romanticism, excitement, flamboyance, someone will say, dude, don't be so gay or yeah. don't be a fag. Yeah. And you, it's like, it, it hurts. It, mm-hmm. we, it's embarrassing. You don't like it. So you jump back in the man box. So what are we left with that we can publicly display without fear of embarrassment? And I would argue we've got three things, stress, lust, and the big one, anger, some degree of anger. So most of our emotions as men get funneled through that anger lens. And the problem is when we go to change as adult men, that pretty much ensures that we've got the trait of defensiveness well in hand by the time we're over 20. And so if someone gives you criticism and you're like, you come back in anger and you externalize blame and it it really limits um, our chances to change in a positive direction. Wow. And even as you're saying that, Dr. John, I'm, I'm thinking about, Uh, and this would be a whole other podcast, but about are we doing enough as parents as we're raising our children and empowering them not to be as subject to us? Maybe we were, you know, when we heard those things, if we were bullied. But then what I'm thinking about is, is that additional layer, and it's always about the result of the result, right? The ripple effect of what you're doing with these adult men, how you can sort of help them to see things differently and how that's going to affect you know, that next generation and even that next generation on an even greater level. So that's Mm -hmm. super, super exciting. Dr. John, I, I am so beyond grateful. I, like I said, I, if you are willing, I would love to have you back because we could, we could have a whole series and, and, and I, I am so grateful for your time, but tell us how we can find you, uh, how we can learn more about the Evolved Caveman podcast and, uh, and how we get a hold of you. Yeah, so the, the podcast website is the evolvedcaveman.com and my coaching website is guide to self.com and they'll have all the social media links on there if you want to follow me on social media. Okay. And you're very active on LinkedIn as well. So I'll put the call letters when I when I upload the episode so that you have a way to get a hold of him. Any last thoughts, word of advice? something you can you can share with our audience that that might help them move the needle yeah i I, one of the stories that comes to mind is um i was giving an interview in san francisco a few months ago and after the interview there was a young woman working there at the tv station that said um can i ask you a question i said yeah sure and this was a lady that had just graduated from harvard so pretty smart lady Mm -hmm. she said "I, i just broke up with my boyfriend a few months ago, and I'm going to start dating again. Do you have any advice on what to look for in a good partner? Wow. So, wow, well, that's, that's a really good question. Let me yeah. think about that. And I said, yeah, I do, actually. I said, if I were you, the number one thing I would look for is a growth mindset with regards to relationship. In other words, find someone that is willing to learn and grow 
in terms of relationship tools and skills, because if you find that person, I believe you can both grow down the road and you should have a really long, successful, happy relationship. So, you know, again, growth mindset, I think is extremely important and be aware that these mindsets are context specific. So you might have a growth mindset in relationships, but not with regards to your anger or not with regards to intelligence or not with regards to learning new skills and at work. So you got to go through your day and look with curiosity, where do I have a fixed mindset and where do I have a growth mindset? And I think that's that's one of the things, and thank you for sharing that, Dr. John. That's one of the things I love most about your show that you get into so much with your guests and 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 even with yourself. But when you're talking to them, you bring out it's it's like everything. It's not you're just talking about you seems like you might be talking about one thing, but then everything <laughs> else comes up. And the mindset is all there. So I really highly encourage everyone to to listen in. You're gonna learn a lot. I'm sure that if you go to the podcast uh website. Uh, you can go back and go to all the episodes, but trust me, it's, it's just, uh, I love, I love your, your format and your, your, your style of doing the, these, these podcasts because you bring everything out very subtle. <laughs> Nobody knows. It's uh, happening, well, thank you right? very much. That, that means a lot to me, <laughs> but it's very that. subtle. I love it. I love it. So thank you again, Dr. John. Okay, folks, you heard it here. You have to uh, follow him. Trust me. I've learned so much since, since I've been blessed to, to be introduced to Dr. To Dr. John. And I'm telling you, uh, you will not be disappointed as, as you know, now after hearing everything that he shared, thank you for being such a blessing for coming on with us. And okay, folks, you heard it here. Uh, go out there and do good and be great and go play outside. Have fun. 